Today on In the House, we sit down with Christian Klein of Dropouse Design. Dropouse is a steel fabrication shop and is responsible for producing amazingly complex yet beautifully crafted designs. Christian and his team showcase their passion and artistry in every project. We talk about Christian's background in naval architecture. We discuss business development and the effect of AI in the design industry. We hope you enjoy this conversation and thanks for listening. Today on In the House, we have Christian with Drop House Design. And I think if you're a contractor in the Austin area and you haven't heard the name Drop House, you've probably been living under a rock. So, um, Christian, I want to open up the floor to you. I want to kind of get an understanding of who you are and how Drop House came to be and, you know, what it is you do and, you know, just, just give us your story. Gotcha. Uh, I'd say it's definitely been a evolving idea. You know, we're about 11 years in now and I come from a architecture background and, you know, original goal was to do design build and, <laughs> and we dabbled in a couple of full design builds, mostly, uh, you know, small residential stuff way back in the early days. And then it kind of evolved more into custom fabrication and, Originally, we did wood and steel, um, as well as some other mixed media. Um, but did a we were probably split pretty evenly between commercial and residential, uh, and then over the years it kind of evolved into really specialty metalwork, and then we do everything from structural to architectural and everything in between. Yeah, um, you know, really just kind of take on a mix of the fun stuff really the the kind of more challenging ones are the ones we look for at this point you know if we haven't seen that before then that's enticing you know if, that's it, looks, awesome. if it looks challenging then those are the the more fun ones that's i think that's what i like about y'all stuff because it's definitely yeah like you said it's you you want the challenge where i think is a lot of people are you know more risk averse and it's like eh, no we'll pass on that but i think yeah you'll definitely kind of grab the bull by the horns and you know get y'all do some pretty phenomenal stuff and i've been watching y'all's work for for a few years now and it's it never ceases to amaze me and everything everything y'all do is is awesome so but you said you had a a background in architecture can you kind of go into a little bit about that i mean yeah basically uh started my undergrad in naval architecture and marine engineering so right out of high school, I started at a small college up in New York that uh, you graduated in four years with a double major in naval architecture and marine engineering. So uh, it, it was a pretty intense workload. It was a really small university. Basically, the guy was a shipping magnet at the turn of the 19th century, and he left an endowment for a school. And so it was an old mansion right on Long Island Sound. There was about 85 people total that went there. Everybody went on scholarship, um, and then every January and February, you went out to work. So the first year, they send you to go work in a shipyard, see how they're built. Second year, they send you out on board a ship, see how they're operated, and then third and fourth year, you'd go uh, to a design office and start to get down to the, the nuts and bolts of it. And so I did that for a couple of years, hopped off a boat uh, in... Uh, Port Sulphur, Louisiana, and spent a couple months in New Orleans after I decided, like, okay, this is not the spot for me. 
uh, worked for a while as a short order cook, and then moved back to DC, worked on the river for a while, I was working on my 200 ton inland waterways captain's license. And then I was like, all right, I did that for about six months. And I was like, all right, if I don't go back to school now, I never will. And that took me down to New Orleans and UNO. And so I did that for a while longer. And while I was there, I was working at the shipyard across the river doing construction management. And so adjacent to architecture, but not quite the same. And was there until Katrina chased me to Austin. And not a lot of shipbuilding jobs here. So I ended up doing fabrication. Worked for a sign shop that did most of uh, interior signage for Whole Foods. And that's really where I learned to like weld and fabricate. And then went, uh, decided to go back to school. Went back to Louisiana, to LSU, and got my MRC there. So I did the three-year master's program. And then met my wife there, who's also in architecture. And we moved over here so she could work on her post-professional at UT. It was either here or Columbia, and that was right when the market crashed. She graduated, and it was gravy. And then about six months later, <laughs> I got to watch it go off the cliff. And still waiting to get out of school, and so I knew that's what I had waiting for me. She had been, her firm at 20 had been, I think they laid off 15. Um, it just, like, wholesale carved up the market at that point. So that was a little daunting. Just spent three years, you know, going back to school, and that's what you're faced with. Um, so we ended up moving over here because it was a better option than New York. I didn't think I could survive New York again during a downturn. Yeah, it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So we got over here, and I did kind of odd job fabrication for a bit. Was partners in another fab shop. Uh, the guy I had worked for previously at the sign shop, he'd started up his own shop. And so I worked with them for about a year, year and a half. And then we got the opportunity to go teach architecture in India. So we went over there for about a year and came back and then tried looking for an architecture job again. Couldn't find one. In India? Yeah. That's cool. Is so like just exposure to kids and telling them about architecture? Or like, uh, I mean, it was, uh, it was you know, it was college level kids. So I taught both undergrad and a grad studio. Um, also taught fabrication primarily to the undergrads, uh, which was fun. We had to go shopping for all the tools to outfit the workshop. And we actually went to a couple of towns within like an hour and a half or two and just went right to the factory. And they're like, oh, here are the ones for local production. Oh, those are the really bad ones. We're sending those over to China. <laughs> these are the ones we send to Europe. Like these are the ones, you know, when they're making vices and that kind of stuff. And we went and bought a drill press at one shop. And then we had to go to another shop to buy the motor. And then we had to build a mounting plate. You know, so there's kind of some fun challenges. You know, you couldn't find a welding hood anywhere over there. Um, so just kind of learning through some of that stuff. Um, and while we were there, I mean, we took the students down to Mumbai to Dharavi, you know, the largest slum in Asia. And it's just amazing, um, you know, when left to their own devices and minimal resources, like what yeah. people will engineer out of thin air, uh, and, you know, doing what you have to, to survive. But I think there was a million people that lived in that settlement. And so that just kind of so like, heavily populated over there. Uh, yeah, that's and that's in a city of like 35 million, so, um, but yeah, in an area not much bigger than like the footprint of like the property the shop's on, you know, it's just kind of wild to think about 
Um, but the ingenuity you saw was like really inspiring. And so got back and there still were no architecture jobs, but I had work lined up. So I started to shop and then not long after, uh, my partner joined me and when was that? What year was that? Like 2012. That one I got here. What'd you get here? Uh, I got here in 16. Yeah. Yeah. My wife was, you know, north of here. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, too far for her, but I wasn't familiar with the Austin area until 16. So where'd you move in from? Uh, I came, well, I came to Austin right out of college station. I graduated at a Um, but I came here right out of college station because work brought me here. Uh, thanks to Mr. Adrian over there. So naval architecture. What is that? It's basically like ship. And ship design. Yeah, ship design and construction. Interesting. So a lot less orthogonal than buildings, <laughs> at least until you get above the waterline. I'm not going to lie. I didn't even know that was a thing, I guess. I mean, it makes sense because somebody has to design the ships. But how much does beauty play into that? How much does making some an object that is beautiful play into that now? Uh, a lot of it depends on which you know, end of the spectrum you're working in. You know, if it's oil patch and you're designing a jack of oil rig, not a whole lot. It's purely functional. Um, or a, a cargo ship. And then you get into, you know, like the sailing yachts and America's Cup kind of boats. And, you know, that turned out, you know, that's the stuff I thought about going into school. It's the very pretty end. And it turns out that segment of an already really small market <laughs> is super narrow. So, you know, I think our class... There's only five schools in the U.S. that offer that specific degree, and our school Web was Web was one. UNO was another one. Um, you know, UNO's graduating class was like maybe thirty a year. Web was like maybe fifteen. So you add that up around five schools. It's not a ton of people every year. Seems proportionate to major. the scale of jobs that are out there, though. It's not like there's so many yeah. so much need for that. So maybe one or two out of every class would luck out and get into yacht design, but that was a pretty narrow field that people kind of held on to. So like I, for example, I was working on uh, government contracts primarily. We were working on LPD, the amphibious landing craft and that kind of stuff. So less pretty and more functional. But I mean, it was amazing. You'd see a, you know, 500 ton lift out in the yard as they're moving like a grand block you know something we would think of as a building as a part of the ship as they would typically build the ship in segments inside the warehouse you know they're really kind of far ahead in terms of like modular and assembly and planning and pre-construction and all that than we are with buildings it's amazing you know, because everything would be split into compartments you know an 800 foot ship is built in like 200 blocks and they would pre-outfit those with plumbing and electrical and equipment, basically crane them up on the ways and then weld them out and assemble them. The cruise ships right now are being built like the rooms are all blocks and it's all prefab and they just basically wow, slide the room in. units into the that. side of the hull. That's yeah. Yeah. Like Lego bricks, so, right? And just kind of stack all these units. Yeah. And their, their version of like BIM was way advanced as compared to the architecture field they were more akin to like aerospace whereas you know they've been using you know they were using computer design way before architecture was <laughs> just because of the complexity 
uh, the vessels. It made sense to transition earlier. It's hard to be on. It was hard to be on the cutting edge of that, and then to use that naval architecture is like seems like it's got its own problems on top of something that's little. Uh, there's little to go out there to to know how to do it. Um, the guy that I worked for at the shipyard, he was a cost and schedule consultant uh, for the for the government. And he basically wrote his own software that would integrate the work order schedule, which had like 150,000 like discrete work orders, like per ship. And each one of those would have about 50 data points like associated with it. Uh, And he could integrate that with basically their BIM system. And so he could reorder the erection sequence of the ship based on delays, based on like certain compartments it, i mean it's amazing but i mean this we're talking about in like you know 2002 2003 you know revit was still like a few years away and like architecture firms you know there's like maybe archicad back then but everybody was primarily still working in cad and so i came from that world and then yeah starting you know coming into architecture i'm all like man there is no good software to like integrate between the two especially schedule and I think SketchUp um, was around. Form Z was around. I don't know if you ever used that. Yeah, there's some kind of interesting ones, but it was it was a little bit of a step back trying to figure out how to how to plan and schedule and integrate that. And everything I was used to was large scale. Like it would take too much to kind of implement some of that stuff and bring it back into the level of construction we were doing. It just wasn't worth it. But so with with BIM. Uh, it seems like the adopters, the early adopters should have been like hotels and like these things that are replicated all over the world. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, the adopters were like, yeah, you, you use BIM, like you, you use modeling software to be able to model things. And uh, I don't know if you use it to the extent of for like takeoffs, et cetera, but it's just interesting that, yeah, you're, you're saying that, uh, the ships are being used for like mod- the modeling software. They're using the software for its full uh, potential and sometimes in some ways driving that. And I would think that would be like the last sector to like adopt like BIM. It would be like more of the, uh, I don't know, the high rises and the, uh, the hotels of, of the world. Yeah. I mean, I think when architecture started to recognize it, I, it definitely was on the bigger projects first, stuff like that. Um, but, uh, was it Katia or basically the program that like Gary used, he stole it from shipbuilding, uh, because of the curves. And when he started playing with that, he's like, looked around and it's like, oh, well, there's already these guys over here doing this. And that's what I want to do. So he took that software and, you know, and now we have our own native stuff, you know, we use a Rhino instead and that's, you know, built more specifically for what we do and fusion and stuff like that. You know, it's come a long way in the last few years, especially. They're all finally starting to talk to each other a little bit better. Yeah. Are you in there? Are you designing stuff in softwares? Or are you... Uh... Not anymore. Yeah. It's, that's a young kid's game to <laughs> keep up with the software. Yeah. You know, I'll sketch. And, but, you know, it's hard to stay current with all those... So now that's what the office is for. Yeah. <laughs> As we right now, we've got six in the office. We actually have three licensed architects. And where's the typical steel fab shop? You might have a detailer or two, um, but we kind of run heavy on that side. Yeah. Well, it's evident in your work. Um, yeah. Thanks. How do you feel about 
the like the integration of artificial intelligence with architecture because this is kind of something that's I think up and coming you know this this AI do, do you see it as like a positive thing or, or negative is it, is it going to destroy creativity and you know people are going to rely more on AI to, to generate some of their designs and I mean what, what are your thoughts on some of this AI stuff coming out I think it depends on how people implement it. Yeah. Like anything, it can be used for good, or it can just turn out uh, a turn bunch out garbage. of garbage. Um, you know, if you're using it as an iterative tool, you know, it's kind of like a pre-designed thing that feeds ideas into other things. It's potentially useful to break ground that we haven't gotten into before. But at the same time, it might just end up recycling and kind of spit out generic stuff. So I think a lot of it is how good the initial user is and what their input is and versus like what they're getting out and what they're doing with that output. And if they're just taking the output and passing it along or if they're using it to actually case study a bunch of things really find a better solution and then tweaking and advancing that then it's potentially taken a large amount of work trying to do a smaller amount of work so then you could spend more time on that like last kind of final step massaging it so instead of exploring two or three potential ideas for a client for a new site, you could explore, you know, 20 or 50 or a hundred and really get to a point where you might come up with a unique solution you might've missed on the front side. But I think it's understanding the tech and really being able to implement it well and use it. And that'll kind of find where it goes. You know, it'll definitely change, I think, the nature of design in an office to some extent and how it does that, how it allows you to ideate. But I don't think it wholesale removes the designer, nor should it. I think it should just be another tool in the box. And I think to some extent it's kind of inevitable. It's a little bit like it's out of the bag at this point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's going back. And so I think we learn to kind of use it along with other things to as an aid but not a replacement i mean what do you think no i i don't know i mean i i agree with everything you said i i just think it's um like at first i'm sure the calculator was an aid but now it's essentially replaced you know understanding arithmetic and uh and different equations because you can just use calculator you don't need to you don't really need to learn my, my fear, I guess, is that AI would kind of kind of squelch some creativity, you know, instead of relying on your own, instead of relying on your own creativity, you're, you're just plugging it into the computer and it's spitting something out. And, and I, I have a fear that that's, you know, the route that a lot, um, a lot of industries will go. But, uh, I mean, hopefully I'm wrong about that. I mean, I don't know, Mark, what's your take? I mean, you're, you're uh, and use it in that vein. Like everybody used to hand draft. They were bringing parallel bars to school and then you had to learn how to hand draw and get your line weights right and know what a line's going to look like with an HP compared to 4B. Like it, and then we had computers. I'm sure they're probably scared of the computers. Oh my gosh, they're drawing lines and, <laughs> yeah, and they're using fair. a keyboard. Oh God, this is scary. And then, that's fair. Like in my undergrad, it was parametric softwares that were like to learning uh, programming to be able to to make these beautiful shapes that that we can have an infinite amount of you know ideations of. And uh, now 
it's it's this. And so I don't think that school's going to be like, all right, you guys are so dumb. We'll just tell a computer to remember what all these other designers did before you. And then you'll become a programmer and then architecture school goes to programming or something. I think that the, I think that the, we'll, we'll understand, you have to know history. You have to, sure. you have to know like where we've been, why, why things are. And the avenues people have gone to, to make these things and where they landed. And so I don't think that that'll ever get displaced. I think that, like you said, it'll be just another tool that's in the toolbox. That I, I agree with your take. Yeah. I think it's, it, hopefully it just stays that way where it's just a tool that you can implement. Um, I think it would actually be cool. I was thinking about this the other day. If, um, I don't know, somebody a lot smarter than me could figure out how to use AI uh, on maybe like budgeting and schedules, because that's, um, you, you, I don't know, I was thinking, you know, the AI could kind of analyze a, a database of information as far as like budgeting is concerned to where, you know, all you have to do is upload some kind of document you know whether it's a floor plan or an elevation or a whole set of drawings and it could it could analyze and look at those and maybe with a few more data points you know like selections and, and materials um it could generate some kind of a budget based on the the data that you've inputted um so i think that would be a useful uh, a useful tool maybe you know hopefully somebody a lot smarter than me can figure that out but um i don't know i see ai kind of being a you know, beneficial in that regard. Yeah, hopefully it's, it eventually becomes more of a expedient, allowing us to get from point A to point B quicker with more information. Yeah. And it doesn't end up like dumbing down the profession. I definitely think it has the potential to go that way, yeah. unfortunately. You know, this is the way I'd like to see it go is be a tool and not like a replacement. Like and so, human nature is always like the easiest way you know, the easiest route possible. And it's like, hey, I have this, I have this program that I could easily, you know, just plug, plug some data into and it would kind of help solve this, this problem or this, you know, do my job for me and make it a lot easier. But um, yeah, because, uh, you know, the principle of the matter is, I, yeah, I hope it just remains just a tool that's, you know, that you could use and not something that, a, a crutch, you know, that somebody leans on but I mean, if, if like, if it's aesthetics, right, and it's an image that creates a beauty and it gets everybody's heart throbbing and then some uh, faker, some faker made it through AI and then they show it, like at the end of the day, if it's going to be this constructive thing, it's going to be this built thing, there's going to be details you got to figure out of the thing. Yes, so I think there's, there's still ingenuity a... of the human yeah. to be able to figure out how this goes together. Yep. Um, so I think using it as a tool uh, is a good good thing, but I don't think that... People then therefore are lazy. I think maybe, maybe they are, but they won't be successful because there's, yeah. there's not ingenuity in, in, in figuring out what, what this thing is. Agreed. Yeah. Especially in the, in the built world, you know, it's one thing we're all accepting, you know, you scroll through Instagram and it's funny. The thing that gets me the most now is like cars, right? Cause that, that's like one of the, my hobbies or passions is like a side design. Just, I, I like the scale of like the vehicle, but there's so much like AI generated stuff now. And I look at it and I'm like, man, if you're actually going to build that car, how would you do that? How would a custom fabricator get down to like actually the details and do that and so now you've got this pile of things it's computer generated over here and you're like oh that's pretty cool but then there's 
the stuff that's actually built that's gorgeous that you're like okay and like you know what is does there become a divide between the two where ai kind of gets so far out here to your point where it's like the details are tough to get back to and actually implement it no does it look like that not really because we didn't think about it that way you know and so that's why you know hopefully that's kind of the the gatekeeper, right? Because there will always be that fluff over there. And there's always been renders and kind of pie-in-the-sky ideas. But the build stuff is really what it comes down to at the end of the day, the real thing, the tangible thing. And so that will always be somewhat of a gatekeeper for the just like garbage AI stuff or, you know, the unattainable over here is, is the category. Oh, can you actually make it? Did you make it? Cool. Okay. Yeah, and I think that cycles of uh, fashion, cycles of uh, what it, what it is versus what it is. I, I read an article about a there's a show called Succession. You guys watch it? Anybody watch Succession? I'm familiar, but yeah, it's I'm like a, they they wear they're like the ultra rich and they they wear like the nicest of clothes and like they had this resurgence of like not the loud tie dye stuff or I don't know Jinkos are back in style now and it's like going into like the back into the nineties and trend and now there's this like cycle of like new like everybody wants like the nicest things i think that uh the cycles of uh, uh of design and what we want out of architecture is going to happen and so i don't know if that'll that'll influence ai's adoption so if an ai kicks out all this stuff and, and everything is uh coming from the lens of what the robot says which is what i guess we're putting into it uh i don't know if it'll go back to you know uh, i don't know Frank Lloyd Wright, the Warriors, and the like, like we'll have this resurgence of mid-century uh, being something, um, which would be interesting. Like, like seeing what like what what we're building today, like your standard um, house is way different than what it was before, and there's like, it, it's like you can tell, oh, that's a 2015 house, and that's a 1980 house. Like, uh, perhaps AI will have an influence on that, and then. I don't know. Who knows what the future future holds? I think I think that's something cool too about AI is that you could a positive side of it, I guess, is you know you you could um, basically you could tell it, hey, you know, design me a uh, two thousand square foot home, you know, single story in the style of you know, pick your architect, and it could spit out some plans that is is in the style of you know whatever your your favorite architect is, and I. I think the possibility of that could be could be pretty cool. Well, I think like yeah, the lower end in mass market application yeah. is probably the best bet because rather than have a thousand home subdivision with eight floor plans, because that's what we want to pay for, yeah. you know, you let the AI generate you know hundred different floor plans, and then the framing are all CNC cut kits that go out and the framers are slapping it up, you know, but you save the money on the front end, you get some diversity into a project that otherwise wouldn't have had it. But on the other end of the spectrum, the high end, like custom residential stuff, like that's always, I feel like gonna be much more bespoke. Like that's what they want. That's what they're paying for. Yeah. Those clients don't want what the neighbor down the street has. And they want to sit down and spend the personal time with you, talking through the details. And they, they don't even want that same window that the guy has down the street. It doesn't matter how much it costs, they want it custom. Yeah. You know, it's like on the similar end of the spectrum at the shop, we've looked at, you know, it's like, do we get a robotic welding arm? 
well, it's for mass production is when you see the efficiencies in it because you have to set it up and let it run and produce like multiples of the same. But when every other part is different, it doesn't make sense on a scale for us to do that. And it's the same in the kind of projects that we're all working on is like all the details are unique and it's not mass produced. And so I think it takes a lot longer to creep like up market, but down market, you know, at the mass level, I think that's where it makes sense. And it does allow you to get more diversity into typology than you would see otherwise. And that's all AI is, is a regurgitation off of what you put into it. So yep. there's not innovation that's coming out of it. It's just a, an amalgamation, amalgamation, amalgamation <laughs> of, uh, of what's already existing. Where So there's not really innovation in it that's in that. Uh, there's a, this, the, in law, somebody, a uh, lawyer used AI to be able to go look up case studies. Yeah. And he got caught, he, he asked AI, and then he submitted it to the court, and it was it was wrong. Oh my it was God. wrong. It completely made up these cases, <laughs> and he got into big trouble about it. Um, I don't know. I think that you like like we keep saying, you have to use it as a tool. And uh, I, I I like the big ideas. I like the new stuff. You know, we had a the last episode a uh, guy that's using three D printers to be able to make stuff like the idea of a subdivision that's made using robots to build. You know, these concrete houses is like. It's like a whole new like level of something. It's an uh, innovation that something and pushing it into the future. I, yeah. I think it's way more fascinating than yeah, the mashup of what an AI thing can do, conceptually at least. We're doing lentils on those. Come again? We're doing lentils on oh, those. Oh, right on, right on. Do you know what <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if I know him specifically or not. I don't know that we work together, but I have worked with those guys a good amount. He said, uh, and I saw it. Uh, did you see it? They're doing two stories now. Yeah, they got the robots with the trash. It's just huge. Yeah. Like, like I wonder yeah. what it takes to like get the job site going to be able to to set that thing up. But I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's a that's an episode. You know, for another time. That that does. Yeah, that is interesting. Like how they even get started. You know, and how to lay the groundwork for that. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a it's a fun process to watch start to finish and how fast you that, you just watched it, you've seen it? Oh yeah, and how yeah. fast that text developed. We set columns on the first house that they printed over on the east side. Like they're okay. real like house zero. The Lake Plato house they call house zero, but that was a few few prints down the road. Mm. Um, but yeah, watching the evolution. You know, even just like in the in the printers and all that technology that goes into that, um, but it's also hugely capital intensive to get that up in the ground, like you know, off the ground and running. And but just a really rapid evolution in four years, five years yeah, from where it started to where it is where it is now. It yeah, received, well received. So yeah, it's a whole different like type of construction altogether. It's really a blending of like construction and tech and a lot of overlap there. So tell me like, how did you get, like how did Drop House come about? You know, like you started in Naval Architecture, you went all over. How did Drop House come about? And what does that even mean? Like what is, what is Drop House? Uh, I mean, it basically, it really started because I couldn't get an architecture job. <laughs> it is kind of the sad, the sad truth of it. Like every the world, gets I, I graduated at a rough time, and 
there weren't architecture jobs to be had. I had lots of interviews. Like I looked for work up in Chicago, here, uh, New Orleans, kind of all over the place. Um, but I could find fabrication work and I had been involved in another fab shop. And so I knew just a little bit, just enough to get myself in trouble about the, <laughs> about the business. And I had, when we got back from India, I sent out a bunch of applications and it's great because it's a lot of architecture firms I've worked with since then. And so the first job we would do with them, I would love to pull up like an old email when I was like looking for a job. And did you? they reached out. Oh yeah, I did this a couple of times. And I would just reply on that thread um, where I didn't get the job and just be like, oh yes, we would love to look at this job. Um, That's brilliant. Uh, and I get it. I've, I've, had, the, I've had the same uh, thing happen to me. There's a couple of people that walked in the door looking for a job that now are wildly successful on their own. And I just think like your path kind of needs to take you where you need to go. Um, one of the partners at Millscale, the barbecue pits, like he applied for a job at the shop back in the day. And thank God he didn't get it because otherwise they wouldn't be doing what they are now. So it just kind of, it kind of works out that way sometimes. But yeah, I had, I got back from India, applied for a few more jobs. Um, I think I was one of three interviewed out of like 200 applicants is how tight it was and I didn't get it. And so I was like, all right, I rented, you know, about 250 square feet of shop space from some, uh, old like DPW burners over on the east side. And, uh, we eventually grew to take over like half of that warehouse space. And so we moved over to our shop space on 12th street. Uh, and we just kind of clawed it up on like odd jobs. You know, in the beginning, it was a lot of furniture, a lot of smaller pieces. Mm-hmm. And then just eventually grew, started doing commercial and residential, and then expanded into like structural, started doing slightly bigger architectural stuff. Uh, but it really was born out of necessity. You know, I had to work, I had jobs lined up where I could do a fabrication, but not architecture. So I said, okay, well, let's make a run at it. And there was a lot of time in the early years of spent bartending. Mm-hmm. Um, Cater bartended, my partner <laughs> bartended with me, and we just did what we could to make ends meet. You know, yeah. put a lot of material on the personal credit card so we could make payroll, you know, which we've never missed. Like, it just was growing the business up. Every time we get a check, we, you know, put, pay off the employees and then put it in a pile towards new equipment and just slowly grow our way up and we didn't debt finance you know until we were maybe five years in i think the first thing we ever debt financed was like the forklift i was like 2500 bucks dude yeah so we just kind of just rolled the money back into the business and really wasn't taking anything out of it in the first couple years we're using other means to kind of support ourselves while that was going on um and then really it was after my daughter was born my wife looked at me and she's like, okay, either you full-time this and you make it work, you make it, make enough money to, you know, support, uh, your half of this, uh, or you put it down right now. She's like, okay. Gave up the bartending and just like committed full-time. And it was a lot of 80, 90 hour weeks. Um, just kind of slogging it out. 
Um, but that means she trusted in you. You had it. You had the ability to make this beautiful thing that you've made. Like she, yeah. she didn't uh, tell you like go do something else. She told you like she supported you. Go yeah. Yeah. In, infinitely, and she held down the steady for a while, and she got back into architecture. You know, probably about a year uh, after me, because she was doing basically client management um, for a year, and then got into architecture. Um, and yeah, her her rise has been even quicker than mine. I mean, she's partner at Chioko, and she's yeah. president of AIA this year. Like, she got into the game later and rose faster. Like, so yeah, <laughs> she is. She has a confidence in spades. Unfortunately, she had it in me and in us as well. And she had enough to look at me and be like, "Hey, go all in on this," because if you don't, is never really going to get off the ground like you want it to. And so we did. We doubled down on it, and you know, fortunately, it worked out. That's awesome. And it seems like you also, we were talking about this later, or first time that we met, uh, you grew to a point that you got too big. So you you found out what size of a company you want to have, like how much uh, you want to control and how much you want your operations to be in in a, a, at Drop House. That, uh, There's definitely a sweet spot to it. And we definitely went through a couple of different periods of growth and some growing pains along the way. One thing I've found is that there's a, a good like small size shop where you can kind of exist as like a four to eight person fabrication shop, uh, and that works pretty well. And then there's like a really awkward middle size where you're like eight to 15 or you know, somewhere in that range where once you start getting on to some more commercial jobs, you're not just doing residential. Uh, the commercial schedules are more aggressive. The payment terms are worse. You know, we commercial clients typically are like our worst paying clients. Uh, the big GCs, because you'd be sitting there holding, you know, an invoice for 180 days. Yeah. It's like, look, I'm the little guy. I don't want to finance your project. I know you have cash. I don't care if the client paid you or not, but I completed the work. I would like to get paid out. And so... And you, I, we also realized you couldn't just add like unemployed. You had to add a crew and enough equipment to be able to take on another job of that size. So that meant adding three people, you know, enough welding capacity, overhead. enough shop space, overhead, exactly. And at the same time, your insurance is going up because then all of a sudden your gross is up a little bit. So then your, your overhead's driving up your costs a little bit. So you're not as cost competitive as that four to eight guy shop. You know, you can't compete with the smaller shop but you're struggling to stay afloat because you can't take enough work at that middle size to even out the humps. You know, you're either all in it or you're not, and you really need to be keeping a few of those larger jobs in the queue to level out the crest. Cause it then too, it was about cash flow. It was like, Hey, we got to go buy all this material for this bigger job. Unless I have another check like to cover. So then you really want a few more jobs to kind of even it out um, because the turn cycle uh, is compared to like from the GC side where say you've got a project that's spanning three years, four years, depending on what it is, um, you know, if it's commercial, maybe it's a year, you know, ours are much quicker turn cycles, um, but the spikes are big, you know, we're just chunking out on material and it's not like we'll get a big check and then we're dividing it between, you know, handful of subs. It's okay, we got to go buy, you know, X amount of material and let's go wipe out that whole deposit. So we need to have a couple of jobs 
in varying states um, going on at the same time. So we realized that that was kind of a sketchy place to be, but we didn't know it was bad until we were in it. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, well, let's grow right through it. And we kind of overshot out the backside and just kind of kept going. And we're like, okay, well, let's keep adding. And we got up to like 35 people and we're like, man, this is so much overhead. This is, and it was the same time we also kind of moved everybody off at 1099 and on the payroll and we started paying half everybody's benefits. And so it was just Dude. really expensive, you know, year in particular, there was a big commercial job we were working on. And back then we would do every scope we get our hands on you know, a commercial restaurant. You know, we'd have like 45 different items in that space. And some of them you're making money on some you're not. And you're running like a 10 man crew to hit all these scope items. And it was tough to keep all those busy, all those employees busy all the time. And then you're at that level where you kind of need like mid-level management, which we really wanted to avoid. And so we just kind of let attrition take over and bring us back down to around 25, narrow down the number of projects we work on, the type of projects we work on. That's around the same time we let go of woodwork and just focused on steelwork. Mm. Um, and we're able to get more selective on the project typology. Uh, so a good example is like ATX Cocina. I don't know if you guys are familiar Beautiful. with that restaurant. Yes. Um, but other than the flooring in there, if it's wood or steel, like we did it. The furniture, yeah. the barrel vault, you know, all the cabinetry. You know, that one had I like. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Seen it. The wood in the uh, it's a barrel vault, and there the wood turns. It's like a no. crashing wave. Like the no. uh, rifles like, over the ceiling. Same wife there. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's like three miles, uh, one by two pine on the ceiling. It's, I think, I think it's Adrian's insane. Gonna to, Adrian's going to try to pull it up. You said it, a, ATX Cocina? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he'll try to pull up some pictures of it. But, I mean, we touched every surface in there. Really? Yeah. And then uh, when we got to uh, Commodore a couple of years later, we did the furniture and the big doors and like the concierge desk. <laughs> and so we, it just got a lot more selective on what we did. Whoa. Um, Dude, so that yeah, is wild. the lighting, the hemlock, the screen wall at the back, um, the banquettes, you know, the back bar. Like I said, I think that we had like 40 or 45 scope items <laughs> on that job. Um, Dude, that's gorgeous. That's badass. Thanks. Um, you did all the woodworking. Mm-hmm. Wow. But yeah, then we kind of put it down like after that and we're like, we're better at steel. The margins we were making, our ability at it. Um, but know. I like that you took that on though. It was. It looked I like that. I like that about you. I'm sorry. I mean, look at that. It uh, was gorgeous. I mean, that's one of the projects I am I am most proud of. And I miss the woodwork, you know, on certain days. Like definitely nice yeah, things about wood great. and nice things about steel and I really enjoyed being able to play in both. And especially early on, it helped us on a lot of jobs when we would take the full scope. Um, but like we even did like the paint grade cabinetry in there. And it was hard to be competitive on the paint grade cabinetry mm -hmm. when we're also doing, you know, water jet, black and steel finish. Mm -hmm. There's just like such a range there that we needed to narrow it a little bit. To, yeah. um, That's gorgeous. All the shells. Like the, the yeah. Bottom. 
Like I said, everything about the floor. Look at that rolling vault, how the the wood meets each other. That's phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, so it was, a, it was around the time we wrapped that one that we're like, okay, we need to, yeah, condense it a little bit and find some focus, um, and scale back a little bit. And a lot of it, so like my partner, Matt and I can be involved in all the projects, you know, to be able to touch them all. Cause once we got, when we were that larger size, it was hard to be involved in everything. And we really want to be involved in uh, everything from the details to the installation and uh, finish out. Do you feel like you're crafting a culture, or I hate to use that word, it's the best one I can think of, of with these people that you, you that, that are working for you, that they're, they're understanding what they're doing, they're, that you, that you've got your fingerprint on them and that they, uh, that they're growing in a capacity in which like you might want to be back at a, a, a larger amount of, of employees than what you have right now. Like, uh, do you feel like you're going to always have the incessant need to be able to have your, your, and you and Matt's, uh, involvement with every project? Or do you think that that's something that you can, uh, at one point, uh, know that you're of a like mind, that, that your product's going to go out, uh, with somebody else that you, you've molded into what, what you want. Uh, I mean, I think to some extent, and there are some projects, there's definitely like we have people that have been with us now long enough where there's certain projects that go out. It's like, oh, I, you know, I don't need to be there. I don't want to see that. Um, or I don't need to necessarily. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's just the part of the business that I enjoy. So my, I have a, I have an awesome partner in Matt, uh, Satter, who takes care of the business side of it and largely runs the design office and I'm more involved in the shop and the field. Um, I maybe spend like 15% of my time in the office. Um, and I don't really want to spend much more than that. Yeah. And so, uh, a lot of it's eh, slightly selfish. I like to be out in the field doing this. Like this is why I got into it is because it's not this is what I take what you want. Yeah. But being, being involved in the projects because I enjoy it, not because I have to. Um, and there also is we've, what we've been doing is moving on to bigger and bigger scale projects as opposed to more projects. So we've ramped the scale up. And so basically you're dealing with fewer clients. And there's fewer issues you got to work through in the office and logistics, but the scale of the projects has gone up. And so as we've done that, like I've enjoyed increasing that and I could see growing it that way more so than just wholesale, like number of projects again. And we've definitely over the years kind of changed the scale of project typology we take on. You know, in the early days, it was like, oh, $500 project. Great. You know, and that kind of floor for what made sense to move through the shop has gradually moved upwards. Um, we're doing a lot of operable stuff, like the big guillotine doors we did in Atlanta. Um, and those are really nice because, you know, those can end up taking over, you know, a, a portion of the year. You know, it's not just yeah. in the wash. It's a large enough project. What is it? What's that, Atlanta? Um, so we did some... Those. This is that big commercial project where you see these they're they're like these giant sorry i don't want to interrupt you no, these go giant guillotine doors that 
Right, they just they all slide up, and, mm-hmm. and did you design all the mechanics and everything that go into that? So or? we work with the engineer. There's a kinetic engineer we work with on okay. a lot of that stuff. Who's out of Seattle, uh, and so either we'll get projects that he's looked at, or we'll hire him to kind of backside check some of the stuff okay. we do. But they're 15 foot tall, 30 foot wide. Holy uh, shit. For commercial space. <laughs> they're massive, these dwarves. They weigh about 7,500 pounds a piece and they're hand cranked. So, it's in this massive, super uh, structure that supports them is about 35 feet tall. We had about 40, about 40 ton of steel that we fabricated here, flew up to an Atlanta. So, Olsen Kundig is the mm-hmm. architect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it sounds like an Olsen Kundig. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely an Olsen Kundig. But that one, you know, was a really nice project for us. You know, it was about a three quarter of a million dollar job, but it was basically a pair of doors. You know, and so that's one client that we have to like deal with. Um, but that's a good size, you know, it keeps the shop busy, keeps my install like crew busy. I, I think I had five or six trips to Atlanta and we'll go up for like, you know, a week at a time and install like chunks of it, wait for them to catch up and do that. So really bringing up like the scale of the project type as opposed to like just more projects. Yeah. It's more projects, it's more clients, more like details and logistics. Uh, and so there's some of those growing into like those bigger style projects uh, has been fun because it, it gives us the advantage to grow without having to add a whole lot of oversight or a whole lot of like mid-level yeah. to it. It seems like you guys, you, know, you cut your teeth, you had to do what you had to do to be able to have basically proof, proof of concept of your company. Like you, you showed your value and, and what you could look Casino, like what you guys can do and so I, I love that you're at the moment where you can select what you want to work on and uh, um, yeah like use the 80 20 principle where you're saying you know I want to focus more on the bigger jobs and be able to double down on that instead of uh, having these one-offs and I think you'll be more impactful that way too I mean you um, I think you'll know that you're going down the right road uh, I don't know I, yeah I just appreciate it I mean, that was a, that was a big part of it is that in the beginning, it's like, okay, I I feel like I can do this work, but then you don't realize how much is selling that you can do that work. It's a way higher percentage starting a business than I think a lot of people realize. It's like, oh, I can weld, I can fabricate, I can work, you know, I can do all this stuff, but you end up spending so much time uh, looking for clients, trying to build the brand, trying to do all those things that that's even more important than your actual ability just in the beginning. Cause it doesn't matter if you can do it or not. Like you have to convince people of that fact. You have to get out there, get in front of people, get the work out there. And so, especially early on, so much time was, uh, was put towards that and invested in growing and like building the business, building the brand, convincing people. You know, one great question I got, we worked on this project up in Leander. Um, It's this big fake water tower outside of a development out there and the GC wanted to swing by the shop. And I've had a couple early GCs swing by the shop at certain points. Um, And he came by the shop and he's like, man, this thing is 
bigger than your shop. Where are you going to build it? <laughs> and we're like, uh, yeah, we have some friends with a lay down lawn. So we're going to do it over there. And we ended up building it in the driveway. <laughs> and there's some old pictures out there. And it looked like the Death Star because we built this thing on its side. And it basically was a big tube frame. And we had steam bent uh, oak staves on it to make it look like an old school barrel. But I think it was... 10 or 12 feet in diameter and about 15, 18 feet tall. Yeah, we just had the thing on its side in the driveway. And what is this? uh, It's a big signage piece for development up in Leander. Um, but yeah, GC was like, "Why are you gonna build this? Uh, I don't know if you have room for this." Oh my god, um, those are future future Christian problems. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you let us worry about it? Like, <laughs> right. we'll get it done. So yeah, we built it in the driveway on 12th Street, and everybody just walked past it for a long time. Um, but we pulled it off, and that was a lot of it. It's like we had confidence in what we could do, but we had to convince other people that we could do that. And those are the projects that excite me. The ones that are like that next level up and that next level kind of beyond that. And like I said, the, the challenging ones, you know, I know we're not like, we were never the best like mill workers are in town. You know, we're not the best brass patina finish guy in town. But if the job looks like it's super hard to pull off and you sit there scratching and you're like, I have no idea how somebody would do this. We're like, I don't know how to model it. Like, I don't know how we would install it. Like all those kinds of things. I'm like, those are the jobs. (laughs) That's a crazy business model. I really enjoy, you know, because those are the ones that like challenge us to grow. And like every time we were able to take on a new one of those and grow, and so, yeah, we're not like the highest level, like in this, like we do occasionally do like stainless work, but we're not known for it. You know, we've never wanted to be like, I want to be the best finisher, like this thing. It's like, no, I want the job that looks crazy. And people have to be like, how did they do that? Yeah. And those are the ones that I'm like, yeah, I want, I want <laughs> that. That is job. awesome. That is so cool. So, man in the arena. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man in the arena. That I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, that was a, a earlier episode that we had talking about. That. I heard that. I like that like take on it. And I mean, you can't be afraid to go after that stuff. No, absolutely not. Um, gosh, where where would we be if you know people like you didn't exist? Afraid to take risks and afraid to you know get out there and you know put themselves out there and or his wife just saying go all in on it like thank you and that and that that kind of speaks to me because my my parents are that they've been small business owners for shoot probably almost 40 years um they work in houston they have a uh a a sweeping company and that was it was a very similar start for them where it was they they were dead broke they decided early on like this is either going to sink or swim you know, so it's either going to, we're going to make this work. And yeah, a lot of working two, two, three jobs, you know, to make ends meet and, and, um, you know, to pay the employees and, and whatnot. And they just started. So like I said, they, they have a parking lot sweeping company and, and it started from just a broom and a dustpan and, you know, and you, you build up and you, you save and you, you buy the next piece of equipment and then that allows you to get more work and then you save and buy the next, you know, sweeper truck. And that allows you to expand and grow from there. And it was all like everything they made just went right back into the company. There was no, no nothing extra. And, um, so I, I think it was a, 
what what you were saying about how kind of drop house formed and and you know the role that your wife had in supporting you uh, was definitely similar to what my parents were going through when they were starting their company and um, which is viable and it's on your own fruition it's on some yeah. else's dollars and the future hope that it'll work it's a it'll work on by your sweat equity and yeah absolutely yeah I think I think you can put enough of it in there and it wasn't. Because that was particularly good. It, a lot of it is because I just pushed and pushed and put the effort into it. And, you know, I think if you have that grit to do it, to put in that time and just like give it all back to it and nurture it, that you yeah. can get it off the ground that and a bit of luck. What what challenges do you see maybe in, in the future, um, you know, as, as far as labor is concerned? Do you see a lot of young guys coming in and, and, and wanting to take over and, and kind of learn what, what you know and who's willing to, willing to study, um, you know, what, what you know and understand? I mean, do you see a lot of young guys coming in or what, what do you see any problems? Uh, I think we're pretty lucky in that we get a good mix. Okay. Coming in, I think we get an interesting array like across the spectrum Um, just because we are a little more like architectural Mm -hmm. focused than say some of the steel shops like we've got new employees starting uh, Monday who's very much the same lineage as like my partner and I except he has like he's probably closer aligned to me where he's coming out of architecture school he kind of didn't want to go the traditional office route. He's done some fabrication and now he wants to like do this. And so the tough part is we get a lot of people that are really in love with the idea. And then when the actual, like you, you throw them in the shop, you know, it works out sometimes it doesn't work others. Um, you know, which is also, but we've, we've been lucky to find people when we need them and also when we don't need them. And so we tend to grab good people when they walk in the door and we've never really hired for positions like we hire for attitude and, you know, is there a skill set that fits in as long as it fits in somewhere in the umbrella? It's not like I'm hiring a shop manager or I'm hiring a field installer. It's like, oh, if I like this person and we look at it, we're like, "Mm, where are we at overall? Can we squeeze it in? Um, you know, cause there's just like natural attrition, like people move on, uh, one of our long timers, he'd been with us almost seven years, just went up to Michigan. Um, and so, yeah, we were replacing that. But, um, when people come along that we're like, oh man, you would be a great fit here. We would try and put them in mm-hmm. knowing that people just do the natural cycle, you know, we'll move in and out. Um, and just try and build the crew that way because attitude is the biggest thing. You can teach a skill set, um, and finding people that are interested in it, um, has been less of a problem. And there's definitely like ups and downs, you know, we'll go through periods where like, Oh, I wish I had like a little bit more at the top or, you know, we need a couple of just like fabricators, like some more skill in. Um, but yeah, the bigger picture stuff. You know, it's like when for Matt and I to really like step back and have somebody kind of take over that like upper level, like total management kind of stuff. That's a little more difficult, like seeing that in the long term. 
um, there's a couple of people that we've got now that we're trying to, you know, see where it flushes out and if they want to grow into that. Um, but yeah, as far as like a lack of like new people coming into the, the trade side of things, we get a decent amount of people coming from school back into the trade from architecture mm -hmm. that it kind of backfeeds that, especially in the early days, almost everybody in the shop was like an architecture fabricator, mm. um, which is cool because it fit the design build model <laughs> really well. Um, and so, yeah, that was really helpful in the beginning because everybody could draw their own project and then they could walk out in the shop and they could weld on it. And it was a really nice mix. And as we got a little bigger, it got a little harder. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we have had to diversify a little bit, like getting people that like know the technology side of it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's like occasionally we'll go head hunting for like a good finisher, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I do think we've been lucky. I don't see that as like across the board. Sure. You know, yeah. if I were a tile setter or a plumber, like I don't think it would be as easy to find. Uh, people coming up. Any mashup with a wife? Do you guys uh, ever collaborated and thought of a business model to make a, I guess she's doing well in your, in her realm. You're doing well in yours, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we kind of kick it around like here and there and it's actually, it's nice cause we'll work on a project here and there. She was at shoes office when we did Cocina. Cool. And uh, like I said, she's partnered with Joko now. So we've done like a couple things together um and that's a nice space because she has her space yeah. <laughs> I, I have mine and then occasionally we overlap so we did kick their idea around for like a bit um but it's it's nice and it's especially because like her and jamie have this nice synergy that like my partner and i have um which like dividing like all the headaches of the business to me is the the best thing that ever happened it's a beautiful uh, marriage you're with a business partner yeah yeah i have a lot of people who be like man i don't know how you could do it with a partner and i look at them and i'm like i don't know how you could do it without <laughs> <laughs> yeah um just being able to divide that stuff you know especially in the early days when it was like man we need to be booking new work meanwhile we're installing this and so i'm totally focused on this but i can't be thinking about lining up the next contract and you really need more of that continuity in the early days, especially at that like medium size to kind of grow through that. When you're a real small shop, you can kind of work your way through it. Where did he come from? Uh, architecture, okay. he was LSU as well. He was doing his undergrad there while I did my grad degree. And we actually met in India. So we didn't know each other beforehand. That's interesting. But uh, yeah, so there was five of us that went over and taught at that same university. Um, and so we all became really good friends. And I got back to here and he got back to Louisiana and I called him up one day. It was like a month in. I was like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, he's like, nothing. You know, it's the market. <laughs> I was like, you want to come hang out over here and give me a hand with this? And it wasn't like, hey, you want to come be my partner? I was like, hey, if you got nothing better to do, like, and it just, it worked out. It clicked and it almost immediately became clear. Okay, you take over this portion and... I'll work on this and yeah. So. It's the fight in the dog, man. It's not, it's, it's nothing more than that. It's the uh, Christian, you're, you, you kill it in anything that you did. Like you're, uh, I don't know about that, but I appreciate it. You know, I was dumb enough to slog it out. And so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you just, with anything, you just keep pushing on it long enough. And you know, as long as you, you know, you're halfway decent, like you get somewhere. 
Yeah. You know, it just takes a lot of grit and then you add a little bit of skill and luck on top of that and you can make it sing. But yeah, I think the biggest part is just like digging deep and doing it, you know, spending the time, putting hours in. Well, uh, so what do you like to do in the off time? Who are you outside of Dropouse? What, what are some of your hobbies? Tell, tell us about yourself. Uh, you saw how I got sidetracked by that international <laughs> out front yeah. on the way in. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I have a small, ugly collection of cars at the shop. What do you have? So, uh, 77 FJ40, uh, 69 Baja Bug. Okay. There's like a 72 VW Sandrail. <laughs> Those are hard to find now. And then, uh, the 2007, uh, Humvee. Um, so yeah, uh, love like the scale of oh, a couple of bikes. So... But yeah, I love tinkering on cars. I'm absolutely awful at it. I like the build out after they're running phase of working on them. <laughs> uh-huh. The little trick detail kind of phase. But you ask me what's wrong with that motor. I'm, uh, I'm not very good at, <laughs> at that part of it. Um, but yeah, and then there's some guys uh, that I crew for. And we go, uh, the, the owner has a spec trophy truck that he races down in Baja. So I was just supposed to be down there for the 500 and they canceled that trip. So oh, I think okay. the next one I'm going down for is the thousand. Um, oh yeah. And the Sandra down in Mexico. So it's got an 87 Jetta motor that a local made an adapter plate to the bus trans. So it still runs all the VW parts. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So that one's waiting for me like down in Baja <laughs> when we go down there. Um, but yeah, I like to, yeah, it's kind of shop adjacent. Sure. You, know, you have this whole shop full of tools and right, things right. you can piddle with. So, <laughs> and then the couple of spaces store some extra cars. So it's like, uh, like working on this stuff, and you know, it's it's frustrating and gratifying all at the oh, same sure. time. And I was thinking about earlier on the way over here. Way put that. It's frustrating and gratifying. <laughs> That's so true. And especially the bug. We would go out and rip that thing around the back nine and break it. And then we'd be like, okay, we got to fix that before we can drive it next time. And so we'd spend like two hours fixing whatever we broke the last time. Uh-huh. And then we'd have like, oh man, we got 40 minutes before we got to be home. So we'd finally get it fixed. And we'd be able to make two or three laps, celebrate, and break something else <laughs> until the next time. Fine. Yeah, it was just kind of like, but it's, I, I love the scale of cars versus like buildings. There's something gratifying about that smaller scale. Um, and it's still design related, but slightly different than just the, the kind of mechanical nature of those things, even though I'm awful at it. That's one thing I really want to learn. I think it's like anything else. You just kind of have to dive into it and it's, it's experience. Yep. You know, he's been doing it for how many years now? And it's just like, yeah, put in hours. Uh What is it? 10,000 hours to master anything or achieve like base level mastery of it and just got to do it and do it wrong for a long time until you talk it right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Once you figure out along the way uh, how much you like it, if you put 10,000 in, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the tough part. You got to kind of commit and then just be like, all right, well, you get to the end of that 10, you're like, no, this isn't for me. It's really <laughs> you either learn it from necessity or desire. Exactly. What is it, 2080 is... Uh, is a year, so Dropouse was 2017. You put in your 10,000 hours, so 
you're 23, so you've doubled that, so you're more than a master. You're double master at what you do. <laughs> well, Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I, I really appreciate you you know, giving your time and coming on the show. We, we really need to get you back on. I appreciate your time. Um, absolutely great conversation. Mark, do you have anything you want to? No, man. Appreciate it. Big well, fanboy. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. So, you yeah, know, hopefully we get to chat a little bit more next time. I want no, to hear about for, what for you sure. guys we'll, are into. We'll so. have to set up a time and do this again, but it, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's, it's been great to get to know you. So, appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, everybody.